0: If you have too many thoughts whirling through your head and need to settle down, get to know your magnificent mind. We let our brains run the show, but the real juice is in finding your true nature far beyond your intellect. Welcome to A Magnificent Mind with Jan Christensen and Marnix Powells. Join us today on a journey to discover your magnificent and endlessly powerful mind and settle down to your real potential. Now, here are your hosts, Jan and Marnix.
1: Hello, this is Magnificent Mind um, with Episode 7. Uh, it's uh, Jan Christensen and Marnix Powell, so you know us a little bit. But today we have an awesome guest, and that is Dr. Samantha Dutton um, from, um, from Ch- Chattanooga, what was it?
2: Chattanooga, Tennessee, but I work for the University of Phoenix. I'm just a remote okay. employee.
1: <laughs> oh, cool. I have, this whole, I have this whole bio of you in front of me with all these things that you did. Um, um, you, 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 um, you're the president of your own consulting company. Um, um, you're an associate dean and a director of social work program in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Phoenix. And you're a licensed clinical social worker. You hold a PhD in social work and social research. And you served over 25 years in the United States uh, Air Force, retiring as a lieutenant colonel. In, uh, so you have uh, you are the recipient of numerous Air Force level awards. You were deployed in uh, Iraq uh, in Iraq in Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom, where you were the lone mental health practitioner for twenty five hundred personnel. It sounds really impressive. And while you cook, sometimes you like to dance. I love that part. So. <laughs> um, Today we we would like to talk about mental health in, in in general sense but especially mental health in the context of first responders and and also in the context of uh, the uh, maybe uh, of the army because that's where your history uh, lies and that's where you come from and can you tell us a little bit about your career and then what happened or how how what, what happened for you to become interested in the in the topic of mental health, and where are you? Where do you want to go with this? What is your your ultimate goal in life with this?
2: Well, I will say what a lot of social workers say is that social work found me. I had no intention of wanting to be a social worker, thinking about being a social worker. Um, in high school, I was um, that bad teenager who was just goalless, didn't didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and um, My mother's like, you know, have you thought about talking to a recruiter? I'm like, what's a recruiter? Like the military is not part of my family history or my family dynamic, except for my great-grandfather, my grandfather being in World War II, there's not a lot of military. And she goes, well, I'll give you 20 bucks if you drive over there and talk to him. I'm like, oh, 20 bucks. Okay. (laughs) So so off (laughs) I went. And um, after high school, I left for the Air Force, enlisted, and I was a flight line mechanic for three or four years doing that, and until I could get the full benefit of the GI Bill. And by this time, I already had um, uh, two children um, with my first husband, and so we're, I was already working in that non-traditional, and then I was a military spouse for about five minutes, and then, then I went back, you know, then I came back and I did, did reserve time for the Navy, um, during Desert Storm and then I uh, did my bachelor's and master's degree on my GI bill and um, came back to the military, back to the Air Force and served the rest of my time through the Air Force um, as a social worker and um, and then selected about the ten or about the ten or 15 year mark of the Air Force picked a social worker to do a PhD program and so the Air Force sent me to Portland State University in Oregon to do a PhD program which was a blessing because, I'd have to, there's no, that was my job just to go to school. So that was amazing. Um, from there, I, you know, I served in numerous assignments and, and then retired about six, oh, almost oh, six years ago now. So I've been um, civilianized for about six years, but during that whole time, I, I was never, you know, I went from high school to the military. I've never been a civilian for the last six years. Like I'm not an adult civilian. So it's been um, quite a ride because it was very different. Um, so I, my own, my own mental health has struggled at times because I, the world, the civilian world is so different from the military world and, um, not good or bad, it's different and just learn yeah. to navigate through that. No different than someone who hasn't had any interaction with the military. It can be overwhelming sometimes because you, you think a certain way and nobody else thinks that way and you're, tr- and you're trying to navigate the system. So, um, so much but you know, working with the, mil- the military has, um, been a joy and, been a sadness and um I've seen heard experienced great joy and great sadness there and um so my heart is always with them no matter what job I take as a civilian and move forward and working for the University of Phoenix has been um another blessing because they have a social stance with this mental health and getting getting the word out ending the stigma not just for first responders but in general so I'm like, sign me up. I'll wherever you need me to be. I'm, I'm, I'm talking. So happy to be yeah. here and happy to have this discussion with, with you guys and and push and push the conversation because it It's not me, then who? So, I'm yeah. ready. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So, so when you say I retired, I, for me it stops there. It's like I'm retired, and then I go, go play golf. But you mean retired <laughs> from the military? Um, mm-hmm. So when you say there is a difference between being in the military and being a civilian, I, I guess there in the military there's there's this kind of, of of special bubble where you where you live in. Um, mm-hmm. But w- do you think there's a difference between like a depressed military person and a depressed gardener, or?
2: Um, I, I think depression is the, feels the same for whatever your occupation is. Um, I think that. I don't think it's based on occupation or the culture. I think maybe access to services might be the difference. Um, We have socialized medicine in the military. So everyone gets equal and there's no co-pays. And it's, you know, one of the hardest things about getting out of the military was navigating the insurance world. (laughs) Like Mm. I never had to do that. Like, what do you, what do you mean there's deductibles? And I had no, I mean, that's like language I hadn't had to think about. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the difference on how care is, um, perceived and how care is given and how, uh, um, the disadvantaged in our society who don't have access to that care is different. So I'm not, sh- I don't think there's a necessarily a difference in depression per se, if, if you're looking at just the diagnosis of depression.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and. So you would, in the Army, you're, it seems like you're pretty well taken care of, you know, when it comes to a lot of things that uh, have been, are in place for you to do your job properly. Um, um, do you think everything around mental health is, is very well taken care of as well in the Army?
2: I think that the intent and the... Um Ability to provide the services are there. Highly qualified personnel doing the services, offering services, um, a complete wraparound service, psychiatry, nursing, social work, psychology, um, different kinds of um, mental health, you know, CBT or PE or you know, whatever the modality. So if it does, if you're not getting that the results from one of those treatments, there's somebody nearby, or we will contract with someone nearby to offer that service. Mm-hmm. Um, we 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 um, are in the local communities, training clinicians so they can have an understanding of the language of the military and being able to. Um, I, you know, I also train social workers too. Like I educate them. So a lot of them are mm-hmm. like, "Well, I come from a military background. This will really help." I'm like, "It will help, but." It will help with the language. Your, your, the culture and being able to speak the language will get you in the door, but your skill will keep you there. You can't just rely on being able to say, oh, I know what TDY, US. you can't just rely on that knowledge of the military. You really have to come equipped with the skills because it might get you in the door at the first trust but they're not going to come back if they're not getting better and you have to have your skills. And so I think we provide the skills, the training. I'm always going to training when I was in the military. So I don't think it's, I think that we do have the capability. It's a lot of the perception and um, no different than the civilian world, but I think, I think it's better in the, in the military, but um, it's still there, the stigma.
1: Yeah. so, so, which, because there's, it's one thing that everything is taken care of and that you have this amazing, amazing organization, uh, you know, consisting of all these specialists that help you. The other thing is how it is regarded, how mental health is regarded, Is it, you know, how how people think about it for themselves. Or is it when you are depressed, when you have, are you suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome? Um mm-hmm is that regarded as something that is just human uh is there is it's just is it looked upon as a as a weakness or
2: i think i think um i think it shows up in the survey that we did for the University of Phoenix where you know people were more inclined to get therapy if some their 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 supervisor their boss mentions it and that they got better or even better, like I think it's 84 percent that said they would go get care if one of their peers suggested it, or their peers said that they were getting mental health treatment. That was never more true than the military. If a, if I had a commander who would stand up in front of his people, his personnel, and say, "I went through a horrible divorce when I was a lieutenant or a captain, and if it wasn't for mental health, I'm not sure where I'd be today." I I couldn't I couldn't. Have enough appointments for the people who would come in. If they could see mm. someone of that stature who admitted that, and then showed up um, and told them, and that they got better, and they still got promoted, they still made they still made it. You know, they're yeah. a commander. Yeah. I mean, that's like the goal, of, like everyone, I guess, <laughs> to, to do that. And so and so they see that, and then it became this um, great transition. But then I've seen the opposite, where I've seen commanders just not be in support of it, and and say, well, I looked them in the eye, and they look fine to me. To me, that's the equivalent of me saying, that wing looks a little iffy there. I don't think I'd fly that plane. I, I don't have the background to say that. So, I mean, I wouldn't expect them to say it to me. So, it's a lot of education on our part, but the longer I was there, the better it got. So, I would say early in my years serving, that it was not as many commanders, and then it became more and more um, open to discuss it but by no means is it gone I don't think it's not gone and um, there's still people who struggle with it and I think stigma is there and I don't know if it's a human thing I mean I guess if you think about I remember my grandmother when I was a little girl her best friend had cancer and she would she would she whispered cancer to me like if you said it out loud you'd catch it or something you know cancer and I think that the more we talk about it and the more that it's brought into the light and out of the darkness um, I think it's It gets better, and people realize there's a difference between mental health and mental illness. You're not walking around with a broken leg, and no one's going to ridicule you for going to the emergency room for it. Why are you Mm -hmm. being? Why would it be a problem for you to have a mom? Did, Did you see the interview with the Dallas Cowboy quarterback? I mean, you know, my dream is one day to have all the Dallas have all the people wear certain colors on Mental Health Month. I mean, they do it for they all wear pink. For you know cancer month why not for mental health month and those guys are struggling they're you know I'm sorry I'm jumping all over the place I'm just passionate no no
3: no that's good yeah yeah that's fine I think people are so frightened of being labeled and Mm -hmm. feeling broken that Mm -hmm. they will do anything to avoid that and Mm -hmm. that's one side of the, the coin that's kind of difficult. What do you do about that? What do you do about the labels and the, the fear that goes around that and shies people away from getting help? Um, well, we look at I, it a little bit differently.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: In that Go ahead, we, I'm we not We don't see people as broken, and we mm-hmm. don't look at a lot of labels as making a lot of sense because we're all human beings. And we all work the same. And if you if you reduce it down to something very simple, uh, thought thought creates our reality. Mm-hmm. And and if we if we have thoughts that make us very frightened inside, then that can make us feel very sick. Um, it's a little bit of a different angle of looking at psychology from, but it's one that makes a lot of sense to us. And I don't know if you're open to hearing a little bit about that, but we'd sure be happy to talk a little bit about that.
2: If you're I'm, a- I'm happy to hear about anything that would make it better, whatever that looks like. Because I think everybody's a little, everyone's a little different on how they receive messages. So if the message that you guys are giving helps one person, then why wouldn't I? advocate for that or i just i just think that there's multiple ways to help people just like there's different kinds of doctors different kinds of religions and people are just they just do that it's whatever's best for the person and social work is like you meet the client where they are you leave your stuff Mm -hmm. behind you meet them where they are and so i'm a firm believer in that so i'm open to hearing um whatever makes it better
1: yeah, well, Jen, you open it up, this kind of word, so uh, take it away, babe.
3: <laughs> well, um, we just view people all as, as the same, but as you mentioned, an important piece of that is that everybody is an individual, so it's very important that everybody be able to choose the type of treatment that works for them, to select what makes them feel healthy, what makes them feel good inside. But one... One truth is that we all have the ability to tap into a a perfectly healthy psychological state inside of us, which is kind of a new thought for people because when we're feeling sick and, and we're feeling like we must be broken, how can you think there's a healthy state inside? But there is. And tapping into it is as simple as getting quiet in your head which is a little bit hard for people sometimes too because there's so much chatter going on in our heads and that's the thing that leads us to the difficulty and leads us to feeling sick and feeling alone and feeling broken is all that internal chatter. So in mainstream psychology, they think of it this way. They think of things happening on the outside world or in the outside world that cause us to feel a certain way and then we behave in a certain way. So, things happen on the outside, and then we react to that with behaviors, and that's what mental illness is, from what I understand. That's how mainstream psychology looks at it. And I do have a BA in psychology, so I know, know a little about it. I, um, I always felt that there was a little something missing, a little something that maybe needed to be tweaked in order to allow people to feel healthy. So... When I came across this understanding, it made a lot of sense to me. And what it is, is that instead of looking to the outside, you look to the inside. We have a thought, and usually we attach an emotion to that. Mm -hmm. And then there's a behavior that follows that. So Mm -hmm. it's a complete turnaround of how we look at things. And when you view it as that, when you view it as a thought resulting in an emotion resulting in a behavior, it gives you a lot more control over your uh, mental well-being because you know that you've, the thought has been generated inside you. So if you take that thought and learn that you don't have to be frightened of the thoughts you have, it again gives you a whole different way of viewing the world. Because those thoughts that go on inside of our head are what lead people to be afraid and to have psychotic episodes or whatever it it evolves to for each individual person. But if you take that thought and you recognize that it does not have to mean anything, we give way too much attention and way too much uh, belief that our thoughts mean something. When our thoughts really don't have to mean anything at all, they're just a little buzz of energy flowing through our head. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. If you if you if you make this very practical, I I had a, a, a anxiety disorder for twenty years, and 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 panic attacks, and I, my my world became so small that I wasn't even able to leave my bedroom because I going to the bathroom was was traumatic for me. And one day I was sitting on the couch and I was, I all of a sudden I realized because. I, one of the first things I, I avoided was squares, you know, where people, squares, where people gather and people cross squares, like in the, in the center of the city. And I realized when I was sitting on the couch that I was totally freaked out about, about a square, but there was no square. I was at home. And then all of a sudden I realized, I'm not, I'm not afraid of squares. I have fearful thinking about squares and the fearful thinking creates my feeling. And, now, and then I innocently made squares responsible for my anxiety. But the thing is, before I f- started to freak out about squares and airplanes and trams and buses and tunnels and bridges, I could visit all these places without any problem. So because I saw that, this very uh, clearly, I realized that I was making it up in my mind. Now, it didn't mean that the result wasn't uh, dramatic because it was. You know I had I had no life to 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 speak of my life was so small but in in the end, I saw it was actually just a misunderstanding where I thought that the world was very dangerous, and I suddenly realized I am creating the danger dangerous feeling, which doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything or that it has no uh, depth or that it's not fearful or painful or torturous, because it's Mm -hmm. all of that. But this made such a big difference to me because I suddenly realized that the world that I deemed to be very scary and dangerous was, was well actually was happening in my head. And and I work with a lot of people with depression and addiction and, and fear and anxiety around these things. And it's always, sometimes it's, it's difficult to, to go to a place where you, where you show your respect for the human experience. And we're not trying to sound like we're downplaying everything, like it doesn't mean anything. It's just your thinking, because thinking is all we have. You know, it's where everything comes from. It's where, when I see my 19 my year old daughter and I, and I get all these warm feelings inside of me, it's, it's partly because I, well, it's a story. I love the story about my daughter. So it's very important, but it's really cool to, to realize that there's a place inside of us that we can always go back to, that it's always there, that's always like an anchor within us that will never be affected by whatever we experience in our minds. And before that, I, every psychiatrist I talked to said, well, you're just broken, you know, it's just too bad. Your parents were addicts, so you're an addict too. It's a genetic thing. Your parents were depressed, so you're, you're depressed. And you just have to learn to live with it. Well, it was eight years ago that I quit drinking and then I had my last depression and my last panic attack. So <laughs> there is something in there that is really very helpful to see. Does it make any sense? Sorry that we we're talking so much, but.
2: Oh, no, but this is helpful. I, I, no, it makes perfect sense. I think what you're describing to me in, in my mental health world is cognitive behavior. Um, which i which I've been trained in and and how you use it and one of the things I tell people um clients or when I was teaching a lot of stress management courses and um, for the military um, one of the things one of the, one of the analogies I give is if you got a flat tire and you're gonna pull over on the side of the road what are what are you doing like are you upset? are you mad are you slamming the thing or slamming the door and I, why? Why are you doing that? Probably because you saw somebody else do it and you've learned this behavior because you saw your parents do it or your aunt do it or your grandparents, whatever. But what I try to tell them is to back it up and we with the ABC train, so ABC are these words we use, activating events, behavior, consequences. So, you know, the, the event is attire. the um, your Your So you get on a train at A stop with the tire and you go straight through B. You don't even pass go, right? You go straight past B to C and the consequence of the flat tire is somehow linked in your brain to anger, frustration, or rage or whatever you witnessed in the past. But really, it's that thought that happened where you should have got off at B. It's where the Mm -hmm. thought happened. And we're so used to just attaching it to certain events that thought to certain events that we just don't stop at B that we just think that there's only a and C. Mm -hmm. And so I try to get people to back it up and find out why they're so mad about the tire. You know, is it something they saw? Is it because they're late for a meeting or, you know, what's the reason? And could you change the thought? What could you do to change the thought? And the thought could be, you know, this was, this was, I don't have to go to the gym tonight because I get to change a flat tire. You know, mm-hmm. Like how can you turn the thought and turn that event into something more positive um, than what you're seeing? And I think that can translate into a lot of things that we do, um, you know, people like, I, I think about this all the time. I used to have a lot of road rage when I was younger about driving. And then you think about, well, one of the person behind me is trying his his wife is in the front seat in labor mm-hmm. and he just needs to get to the hospital with her. And I'm just going to play play. Chicken on the road, so he can't get by me because I don't want him to win. Win what? There's no winning. But so yeah. he gets there five seconds before mm-hmm. I do. Who, who, why do I attach like competition to that? And would I do the same thing in the grocery store with a grocery cart? No, I mean because you, you're in your box of your car, and you that's translate into your bubble. And so, but you wouldn't do that in the grocery store. You don't even make eye contact in the grocery store. I don't even know who's in the grocery store. Are there people around me? I don't know. I have like, I'm, I'm like in my own world there. But if you get me in the car, I'm like, how dare they pass me? Don't they know the yeah. speed limit? Are they trying to meet their maker? I don't want to meet my maker. Maybe they want to meet their maker. You know, so all these thoughts were like going through my head. So even now I have, I talk myself through it. Like, why am I mad at him? I don't, what do I care if he gets in front of me? Does it matter? I'm going to get there two seconds later. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why I'm so upset about it. Why am I upset about it? There's no reason. So I try to explain that to people and that, and that even with people, not that I'm special, but people who have this knowledge, who have been educated in this knowledge still have to struggle a little bit with it, you know, because we're just so trained in how we think. And so I Still, even today, I'm like my husband. I'm like he goes, I don't know why you're so mad at him. I'm like, well, he's going over the speed limit. It's a construction zone. I'm like, <laughs> like yeah. I'm the judge, jury. <laughs> yeah, I know well, it, why they're going fast?
1: So. Yeah, but, but you know, I, I guess it's 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 a question of it's not it's not as much as an inter- intellectual knowledge as more of an embodied knowledge as mm-hmm. more as of knowing your the space in which this happens. You know you can know everything you can know that smoking is bad most smokers right. do but they right. still smoke so knowledge has this limit of where, where it's helpful for you and mm-hmm. then then awareness comes in, in into play being aware of what happens inside of you and let's talk about that in the in, oh i feel so professional let's talk about that in the second half of uh, <laughs> of the of this episode because we are uh, reaching the break i'll we'll see you uh, later
3: play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts.
2: It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com
0: This is A Magnificent Mind. To reach Jan Christensen, Marnix Powells, or their guest today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to mind at gmail.com. Now, back to A Magnificent Mind.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to uh, the second part of uh, A Magnificent Mind, um, uh, episode seven. We're talking to Samantha, Dr. Samantha Dutton, and we can call her Samantha or even Sam. And the cool thing is when you leave, you know, you, when you skip a, a couple of words, everything becomes so much more intimate, and there's so much distance in labeling and titles and you know, oh, I, I went to this university and this thing. And, you know, when it comes to mental health, you can't outstudy your pain. You can never, you know, you can never become larger than your mourning, than your sadness, than your um, the things we experience as human beings. And it seems to me that we expect people in the army or first responders to be, uh, able to transcend our humanness. So, wh- what do you think? Uh, do you hear anything in that, uh, Samantha?
2: I I think I think that's um, a good way of point of, of of picturing that is that we expect these heroes to be everything, like we're watching a Marvel movie or something. You know, like if we expect these things, and and then when they don't, then our first. I'm speaking general, not me personally, but in general, like. What do you mean that they have depression? But then the next thought f- for me is, why don't they all have depression? Because they're seeing stuff all the time <laughs> worse than me. They, they should, they should be like number one in line for anxiety, depression, or what, or grief, or you know whatever they have going on. They're they're seeing some horrific things and giving up their family. They're on twenty four hour shifts or six months in the desert or you know doing things that. I don't do anymore. I, you know, I get out of bed and walk over to my desk and turn it on, (laughs) you know, turn on my computer and do my day. I don't have to put on special gear, and I don't have to go have people shoot at me. And so, why wouldn't they have these things? And why Mm -hmm. is it wrong if they do? Because to me, they should. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, my first thing is, why Mm -hmm. don't they?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, they deserve. Yeah, why do some? Yeah.
3: Yeah, why do some people experience such terrible pain and other people go through the same thing and they don't seem to be nearly as faced by it as as other people are. That's an interesting perspective to look at it from, isn't it?
2: It is, and yeah. I think that in the years that I've served in the military and and spoke to people it could be the first time they were on deployment they come back and they're significantly impacted or it could be the 10th time Mm -hmm. or the 5th time (laughs) or the 2nd time I I can't predict although there has been some studies about predicting that if you already have a history of mental illness like And when I say mental illness, I mean like you have a history of depression or anxiety, something like that. Then you're more likely to have PTSD or more likely to have come back with some issues from these kinds of traumatic events, like war or you know a child dying in a house fire or you know something like that. You're more likely to have that happen. Um, But if you don't have a history of that, then it's really hard to kind of predict what's going to happen to people. And so in the military, mm-hmm. we just assume that it's going to happen to everyone um, and not in a bad way. Like we don't, I think the, the general public thinks that everyone has PTSD who's ever served in the military. Not the case, a very small, very small percentage of people who've ever served in the military have PTSD. And the, I think one of the issues with that, too, is that the, the media highlights that. So then it becomes like, well, everyone in the military has PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, not true. A very small percentage. And, um, and very treatable. So the reason the military does what it does um, is that we don't want them to have PTSD. You can't have a diagnosis of PTSD until six months after onset of symptoms. So you have a time span there to act and do something with that. And so we do. Um, it's only as good as the person who wants to receive it, though. So if you don't tell me the truth, I am not. A, I don't have a crystal ball. If you don't tell me what's really happening and you, and, you, and you neglect some of the symptoms or you neglect telling me you're having a hard time, then I can't just pull out my crystal ball and say you're lying to me and you're coming to counseling. You know, I I can't do that. So Mm -hmm. it's really a two Mm -hmm. way street um, with the people, with people I'm sitting across from, you know, I'm, I'm here to help you, but I can only help you if you show me your broken leg. I can only, Mm -hmm. I need to see it and see how bad it is. Do you need surgery? Do you just need, you know, Cast, what, what do you need? What, what kind of pain medication might you need for that? Is it, you know, mm. a compound? Is it just a twisted ankle? I, I don't know until I can see it. And if you don't show me, then I don't know. And then I can't give you or help you um, get, it, get the leg feeling better. Does that make sense? Like, so I yeah, try to, totally. try to if, if I think about yeah. it like a physical ailment, like if your leg hurts, I don't know why it hurts until you show me your leg. And so until you, sh- I can see you limping around. I see it, but mm-hmm. I don't know why you're limping. Are you're limping, I don't know why. And so you show me the leg or let me talk to you about it, then I don't know why you're limping. And then it might just be a twisted ankle and just put it up for a couple of days and you're better. Or it might be a compound fracture and you might need surgery and you might need blood transfusions and pain medications and pins. I don't, I don't know until you show me.
1: Yeah. And, and, and this is, of course, tied very closely, again, to the openness around it. You say, when, when you don't show me, when you don't tell me, when people are ashamed about it, when people don't want to tell because they think they'll be judged for it, you can do much uh, just the same, right? If, if people are not prepared to to open up their heart a little bit. And, uh-huh. so, and here we go again, t- back to the whole idea of uh, stigma and taboo around all these things. One in five people will, in their life, will have a period of anxiety that is more than than just a little bit of fear. and most people know somebody very close to them who is very depressed or maybe even attempted suicide, and still we pretend that it doesn't exist or that it is really rare. And, and we always compare ourselves to the normal people who doesn't have it. Well, I, I coach, I've coached over a thousand people. There are no normal people. I've never <laughs> met one.
2: I tell people that you can't, you cannot compare your insides to other people's outsides
1: yeah.
2: because you don't, you don't sleep under their bed at night. You don't know what's happening in their world. You know, I, you, you can't, you can't look at Facebook and say, wow, their life is perfect. I, I I have friends who I mean even I use Facebook and Facebook is like my feel good place if I see bad things I just keep scrolling you know I just I put my family pictures there and I have a granddaughter and I put her up there I'm like look how cute she is that's what I use it for but other you know so people might think my life is perfect if they look at my Facebook because I don't put mm-hmm. my worst stuff on there I put like all my happy stuff there but that doesn't mean that that's how I function every day so that's my facade and i and i agree i there's not ai i'd be willing to bet there is not a person in this country that isn't touched by mental mental illness whether it's themselves a family member a friend drug addiction there's not one so it's perplexing to me that we're still having this conversation conversation about why the stigma i mean we're starting to have more and more celebrities come out more and more you know Pro athletes or you know which unfortunately or fortunately i guess you could say is we need them to say something because that's where that's where america seems to latch on to the reality stars and the, what are they doing and how are they functioning and what you know i i want to be more like them um so having people you know like a dallas cowboy quarterback over the weekend saying that he was struggling with mental illness and his brother committed suicide and then a a a Fox News, I don't know if it's Fox, I shouldn't say that, but it was a, a newscaster said, well, he's supposed to be a leader. He shouldn't say that. That makes him weak.
0: Oh, man. I'm like,
2: oh. wow, you just like took 20 steps backwards. You know, he, yeah. he's he, a real leader tells you a real leader is all in, you know, good and bad. And this is what I got going oh, on. And I so I want to be honest about what's happening. And I think when you do that, then it makes everyone around you more honest about what's happening. Therefore, yeah. you can mm-hmm. move forward as an organization, as a family, as an individual. I think that there's a lot of credence to that, and the fact that we still have these conversations today. I, I just, I just think back to my grandmother that you know, whispering cancer. We would never say that now. we we, you can say breast cancer on television. I mean, that would never happen. So I think, I think it's getting there. And, and if someone has cancer is like not. I mean, it's a horrible thing, but it's not taboo. It's not like, well, don't touch them or don't don't get near yeah. them or it's not like that. But that it was like that in the '60s, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I, but it's not like that now. So that's why I have hope, and that's why I think having the conversation as often as I can with anyone who will listen, well, it will happen. We're going to have a tipping point, and it will tip over. And I think I think we're close to it. I think we're getting there. We're going to have pro football players wearing green. Mental health month on the field and talking about, and the whole thing is not about the breast cancer, it'll be about mental health. And the mm-hmm. commercials will be about mental health and how to stay mentally healthy and not mentally ill. So I think it's yeah. coming, mm-hmm. it's coming, and I want to be a part of the wave when it crashes on the shore.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, it seems that right now the world needs it so much because what I would always, always, you know, uh, surprises me in a big time is. The world has, people have never been as comfortable as we are right now. We all have a drawer with 10 phones we don't use anymore. You know, everything is so, we have <laughs> electricity and we, have, it's, you know, there have never been as little illiterate people in the world as right now. And there's never, never been as as, as uh, little people who are, are uh, live in poverty. And still way too much, of course. There have there have there are less wars than there were in the past, so everything is more comfortable we're more fine here. and and it, it seems that me- mentally mental wise we are going the exact opposite direction, like uh, there are so many people burned out there's so many young people who are afraid of life, afraid of the future, afraid of the choices they have to make, people who don't, are not able to have conversations anymore, who not just, who, who, who don't have the courage to look other people in the, in the face anymore because they're so used to watching a screen. So, and I don't mean th- th- this, this thing I'm, sa- I'm saying, I'm not saying it because I think that's, I don't want to paint a very bad picture. I think this will result in the necessity to open up. I see it as a very optimistic thing. Maybe that's really weird. But when I quit drinking after 28 years of alcoholism and anxiety and depression, my life started. And I needed the pain and I needed the, the darkness to, to um, surrender. And sometimes we need pain uh, in order to look in different ways in different directions and to see ourselves in a new light and it feels to me that the world is in that place right now and we you know it's like a like an arms race like who will be first you know to me donald trump is a perfect example of of like the most ridiculous person you can think of in (laughs) in such in such a such an important position but i think it's amazing because one of these days people just have to realize like no now he can be even more uh, uh, ridiculous in whatever he says, so I think it 's a catalyst, so I have a very good feeling about the future, even i don 't know what it looks like, so i I'm, I'm like you you know when when but let's let 's make it a little bit smaller again. What do you think we we can do? I can do you can do people who listen to this can do in order to enlighten the world a little bit in order to help people wake up from the idea that we have to be tough and you know, perfect and successful all the time.
2: Well I think I think we're we're doing something right now. Having this conversation, it's gonna be on a radio station, it's gonna you know it's gonna be out there for people to hear and it might touch a person or two, which, you know, to me is you know, just that's how it goes. It's like wildfire, not just making a <laughs> California, Oregon, and Washington. <laughs> I don't want to be a bad <laughs> thing like that. But I want it to yeah. be a domino yeah. effect. And I really want, I really think that people um, are primed to listen to this because I think there's no place else to go. I mean, how much stuff you have, how much, how easy it is to lose it, especially after the COVID 19 and people losing their jobs. I mean, there has to be something else. And I think the, these voices, like you guys' voice and in a small way my voice and other people's voices, are just going through the darkness we're just yelling at people over here over here over here and I think slowly people are like hey what's happening over there we it feels better over here why aren't we over there why are we hanging out in the darkness and and spinning the wheels and it's always the same outcome always the same outcome and I think you know I think being able to get out of your comfort zone and being able to have this conversation like if I talk to my family about mental illness even though I've been doing this for three decades now even if I talk to them about it they look at me like yeah I don't know you know they're just skeptical even though this is what I do for a living and even this is what I've given my life to they just still look at me as as I'm kind of crazy you know like why why are you going to tell people all your dark secrets I'm like well because I don't want them to be dark. Everyone has the same secret. They're all struggling. No, everyone's living paycheck to paycheck. Everyone is wondering about COVID. Everyone's wondering if they're going to get sick. Everyone's wondering if the wildfires are coming. Everyone's wondering new things. So why can't we just talk about them? And can we talk, You know, can we please speak to people with some grace, you know, like some respect and to hold hold differences as not I hate you differences. Just because I think different doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just different. Um, and but it seems it seems like we're getting there so the more we talk about it the more we have these conversations the more we do in our own community because that's where you have the, the realm of control more you know I you know my neighbors speaking to my neighbors because we can't go anywhere so we're sitting on front porches talking to each other across the thing you know having those conversations I think I think that's where it is the grassroots I think that's where it goes and it does take one person. I think it is one person, the tipping point, one more person, one more person. And when people don't think that they can make a change, they need to look in the mirror because they could be that person. They could be the person that at one last tipping point, they may never know it though. They may never know that they were the last tipping point. Uh-huh. But yeah. I think it's, I think the more we talk about it and we, and we don't whisper it, we can't whisper it. Like, cancer in the 60s you can't whisper the word you have to say yeah I'm going to my counseling appointment you know just like I say oh I'm going to my mammogram you didn't say that 20 years ago because you didn't talk about that but now you're like oh I have a mammogram I, I'm I have to go next week and they're like oh okay well good for you and but no one says oh I can't make that meeting because I have a counseling appointment <laughs> so, so why not so I, I so I make it part of my conversation make it make it part of your conversation and then it becomes normal
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah well i think mm-hmm. what helps is is, mm-hmm. is that you have a bigger bigger amount of people who can counsel you help you like mm-hmm. we coaches we i think we've we we we, we fill a, some part of the void by not being labeled as mental health practitioners so if you go to a coach it doesn't it's not so scary mm-hmm. not so like oh there's something wrong with you now you can go to a coach because you just want a better life most people i talk to suffer mentally um, and and have to be you know in Holland in, in Holland it is not not really a big deal to be honest. I live in Amsterdam, so it, it's pretty okay to to tell that you go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Um, it's not regarded as a very weak uh, thing. So that's that is very uh, very Probably. cool. Yeah, it is, and 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 I think you're right. It is, um, you know. What it comes back to and, I, and maybe this is a really weird thing to say, but with Jen and I love to talk about this it's, it, it, it all comes back to love all, always, like you know loving who you are, loving your insecurity, loving your imperfection, loving the imperfection in other people, and embracing that and coming from that place, when you see that people, you know some people choose the, 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 the more the aggressive style in trying to change things. And then you have the more like the more Buddhist or Gandhi or whatever style or Martin Luther King style that comes from love, um, and I think that's our our gig, our our mm-hmm. place to 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 come from. And I think you know the world needs love, and and having these conversations, I think we give some love. At, at least that's. Well, that's how I like to see it.
2: <laughs> I, 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 would, I would agree with that. I think, I think that um, I tell people all the time, especially my, my, ki- my kids are all in their 20s now. Um, you know, they're, they're adults. And I say that with air quotes, you know. <laughs> you know, they're, chronologically they're adults, but I look at them like <laughs> <Yeah>. they're 12. <laughs> so, yeah. um, anyway, but I always tell them, you know, they, they get into relationships or I'm like, please don't give away your key to your happiness. That should stay in your pocket all the time. You have, it's your key. It's not their key. It's not to be given away. You own the key. You can open all the happiness. You're looking in the wrong place. It lives inside of you. It doesn't live anywhere else. Mm. Some people can enjoy the happiness with you, but you own the, your happiness and you control it. That's, you know, I'm starting to get a couple, you know, glimmers of understanding out of a couple of them. <laughs> so, you know, it's just a hard concept because they see, well, if I make more money, if I get the next car, if I get the next job or live the next house, then I'll be happy. But then I'm like, I point out to you, I'm like, they're not all happy because it's not that's not happiness. You know, loving yourself yeah. before you love somebody else is very important. You need to learn how to love yourself and be Comfortable in your own skin and being okay to be alone in your own skin before you can give any of that away or or sh- or not give it away but share it with somebody else as they share it with you. So I I think that's an important message that loving yourself should be first and then you can keep going.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and um,
2: that's
3: beautifully said. Beautifully said. Okay. It's that place inside that I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. That place of health inside of you. Mm -hmm. That's where you bring your happiness out from. That's where you bring your love out from. And everybody has it in there, that place inside that's home. Mm -hmm. It's that peaceful place that you know Mm -hmm. you're okay inside. And just tapping into that can change people's lives. Mm -hmm. And it's getting rid of the conditioning too the conditioning that says that you need the good job and you need the big car and you need the big house. And f- people recognizing that that's not where happiness comes from. That's not where love is developed. Yeah,
2: They need to get off at station B. Yeah, <laughs> They need to get off at station B and evaluate why they think like that. They need to be able to get to C.
1: <laughs> or, they, or they should be aware that they are A and they will always be A. And, mm-hmm. you know, B and C oh, are optional. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and, and the cool thing with, with kids is, because what that's what I see with my daughter, is that I can tell her everything, and she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But really, what's really impressing her is how I live my life.
2: Mm-hmm. Modeling um, the behavior, I think, it's modeling. It's, the yeah. words are empty. Modeling. Yeah. Are you living yeah. what you're saying? I think oh, yeah. that's, what, mm-hmm. that's what tells people around you that, you're not just walking, you're not just talking the talk, you're walking the walk, right? That's the impediment the yep. of that is that you're doing that.
3: Yeah, yep. and if we can help first responders to tap into some of this inner self, mm-hmm. I think it goes a long way to help them to feel healthier and well, to I feel think, safer.
2: Yeah, well, I think part of the, that survey we did where they, you know, if 83 percent of the first responders said they, if their peers were getting help, they get help too, or they were, or that they were encouraged to get help, they would get help. Eighty-three percent would say they would do it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that says volumes. And and yeah. and what are they saying? They're saying they 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 don't want to get it because they're afraid their job will be impacted.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so yes, there there should be some guarantee that it's not that that their job is not at stake, right? So they should be able to feel safe yeah. when they op- when they open up.
2: I would say mm-hmm. that there's there's definitely jobs in the military that are less likely to come to mental health because if you even by walking into my office you couldn't do your job for a period of time until I said you could. No matter mm-hmm. I'd have to make yeah, an evaluation uh, and make no that decision. What? And so it's very scary, but it goes back to my analogy of the hurt leg or if you just have the allergies, an allergy cough or a cough or COVID. I mean, I don't know if you show up. And so they're self-diagnosing or they're self-soothing which is alcohol, maybe alcohol, maybe other things, spending too much, you know, having extramarital affairs, whatever it is to make them feel better, that's what they're doing. Instead of coming and setting my office, because they are so um, trained to do that that job in the military that they can't imagine their life without it. And that if they admit that they're wrong or admit that there's a problem, then they won't be seen fit for duty. And then there's a whole, thing that could happen that could happen yeah. but my experience yeah. is that when people do come I rarely did people have to really be out of that position for very long if they come early enough it's I it's easier to quote-unquote fix right it's easier it's like taking the an antibiotic or not taking the an antibiotic this kind of thing and so I can help you but you can't just keep taking cough syrup
1: mm-hmm but but as as long as you have the risk of being fired because of mm-hmm. opening up around your mental health, I can imagine that people are scared to do so. So well, they do have a
2: program. It's yeah. called um, MFLAC, military family life coordin. I'm trying to think. of It's been a while. Military family life coordinators, and those are um, licensed either psychologists, social workers, you know, LPCs um, that are in the communities and that military members and their families can go seek help with. And there's no record. So there's no, um, calling to tell your boss it's completely anonymous. Now they still have to uphold, uphold the things of, you know, if you say that you're going to hurt yourself or someone else, they going to, or child abuse or anything like that, all the regular stuff goes along with it, but there's no phone call to your commander, you know? Mm. So I think that those services are needed because then they feel comfortable. You know, it's, and I, it doesn't hurt my feelings. It doesn't hurt my feelings if they come to me or somebody else. Are they getting better? I don't, I, I don't care. I mean, I yeah. care about them. I don't care yeah. where they get it from. So as long as they're getting better, yeah. I think that's the most important thing. And then, of course, we have, you know, this this alliance with Give an Hour, which is helping people, um, uh, um, the community, including first responders, so they get free care where there's no – no one's going to know. No one mm. tells. It's not part of their EAP or their insurance program or any of those things. So
1: Okay. Well, th- uh, thanks. That's, re- that's really good to know that these things are in place. Um, we are at the end of the show, um, unfortunately. We are at the end of our 26 minutes. As, you know, as a matter of fact, we are over our 26 minutes. Um, so this is for the official part. Thanks, Samantha, for showing up and uh, talking about this really, really, really important topic with us. And let's hope that this changes a couple of lives.
2: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to A Magnificent Mind. Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll see you then.